My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. I'm recording this episode, too, on the thread of my ancestors and their meaning to me and my connection to this land of Ireland and its meaning in my life. At the end of having recorded all of the other podcasts for this release at Imbolc, and I'm struck by some of the interweaving that's been going on across the threads and this non-linear way exploring thoughts that does seem to help build connections between them. So I hope that this one helps pull a few of the things that connect back to an earlier time, but also influence my today. Thinking of my ancestors, I am imagining what I know about indigenous peoples around the world today. Those that live in remote island places in particular have something of an affinity with our experience in Ireland and these islands on the edge of Europe. There's a wonderful writer, Jay Griffith, who's written a book about wildness and she's travelled all over the world exploring connections with indigenous people. She's very deliberately not tried to go to places where people from the West haven't gone. She's gone to the edges where People from indigenous cultures are already in full contact with people from the West or elsewhere. There are very, very few places, possibly only one that was recently seen from an aeroplane of an indigenous tribe in the Amazon who might not have had contact with us. And I believe there's many efforts to try and to leave them alone. But in her book, she talks a lot about what happens in today's world if people are pulled out of their environment from an indigenous place in the world fast and aggressively and quickly through the same means that all of the people that are indigenous to the world have been pulled out. And that is when some colonial power corporation is attacking through whatever means they can an indigenous people in order to get at their resources. That is the history of the last hundred years in particular. A hundred years ago, more than 50% of the world were indigenous people still living in their lands, despite what you might imagine of the colonies that had happened in Australia and America by that time. But just like I talk about the erosion of the wild animals, the same erosion of people who live in wild places has taken place in this hundred years. 
And now less than 1% of the world's population is indigenous, still living anywhere close to their own ancestral lands. So whatever wisdom we have to gain from their way of living sustainably for hundreds of thousands of years before the change in how we live that came from agriculture that I reference in the other thread, we must learn it now. And not from a extractive way either, from a respectful and honouring way. And so when Jay Griffith writes about it, she talks about the immediate effects on people who loggers and roads being built and churches being enforced and people told to change their way. She writes really beautifully about it, that the immediate effects are a complete erosion of mental health, an increase in suicide, an increase and in immediate addiction to things like alcohol, potentially other drugs. So sometimes when I think about that, I imagine a slower erosion that happened in Ireland of our indigenous roots and where perhaps it was less abrupt but the effects may still be the same ripples. There's a very long time frame of continuous population being on this remote land. It's unsure exactly how long but there are hints that it could have been as long as some of the Aboriginal peoples of Australia and New Zealand of those lands not called that under their names. And there are remnants, particularly in language and story, of the things that the earliest peoples here may have known. Certainly those that came with the Irish language, which is a later, but what they might have learned from contact with the first settlers to this land. Things that talk about the way that they did use substances to open the gates of their understanding of the connected world all around them through shamanism of a kind, druids, elders, the original Kailaki. But later, what we get to hear about is that part of the change is the resource battles. Those that came, those that colonized, those that became clans and territorial. One of the things that seems to have changed over that period is the treatment of women, the subjugation of women, the enslavement of the other. What I like to think about is what aided us back then to bring things back into balance when they were not. I've been reading Ankan Mangan's 32 Words for Field and he really touches on the remnants that are still there in the language. One of the things that I have often thought about is what I was called as a child was being away with the fairies. And Moncon talks about who the fairies were, how they were portrayed in the language. And one of the things is that being away with the fairies was being called away, being pulled to their world, being pulled to another worldview. And it may give some indications of the remnants of a worldview that the Shiog, the she had. And I wonder today about if that call is there again for deeper connection. The fairies were supposed to look from this other world of theirs at our crazy lives. They looked and would come and observe us and they thought we were strange. 
that sort of sounds a bit like indigenous people encountering people from our world today. If they were to meet us, we would be doing strange things, particularly seems to be the strangeness of our attachment to material and worldly things, whereas the fairies seem to be much more attached to fun and joy and to be called away to feasting. And yet it wasn't of a tangible worldly kind of a feasting or gluttony because often fairy feasts disappeared and you hadn't actually eaten anything. And so it was something about the more liminal world, the more imaginal and energetic world that they called people away to. And that seems to touch on the shaman's use of some of the substances like mushrooms and so on. And that seems to call to the shaman's use of things like mushrooms to open gates to other perception. And these were used, it seems, or at least we can imagine, to help with figuring out balance. Because one thing is sure is that people who live in the periphery in harsh environments are trying to live in balance with each other and with the carrying capacity of land and being aware of that and being aware of their dependence on each other. You have what people call close-knit families as a way of surviving or close-knit communities. Even in relatively recent times, when there was a much bigger population of Ireland, they had learned to survive in a, a colonial state, being given the marginal land and the edges. And I like to think about that when I imagine what we're doing now on a marginal field, regenerating soils. I'm really, what we're doing now in the thread that I talk about our work on a small holding in Wicklow, we're doing things that are very close to what our ancestors did on marginal edges of land pushed out by a new kind of colonizing of access to land and land tenure. We too are working on a marginal field of rocks and we're copying in some ways the patterns that were there for a long time ago, creating lazy beds with seaweed and making soil from manures and composts and leaf mould and so on. There's a passage in Monkhan Mangan's book about 32 words for field that I'll put in the listen notes because it describes what it is that we're doing on our marginal land almost exactly. And yet he is talking about my ancestors trying to improve ground that they had access to through really similar means. And I find it interesting to think that something from the edge and from the margins has still value today. My own attempt to step into elderhood or Kailak, the meaning behind the name of this podcast, is something I'm still learning. And again, from that reading I'm doing at the moment, I've learned a whole lot about the multiple different meanings for the name. How I understand it in connection to myself and to the ancestral messages that to me come through the name is about this age and stage in life that echoes the ages and stages of a, a year-long cycle. So here am I turning older, not fully at the age of, of elderhood and Kailak, but turning towards it. And that is similar to between autumn and winter. And now what the Kailak does is interesting 
in the mythology, as the Kylak turns towards the spring, she uses her stores. She's been a guardian of stores of wisdom, come from other Kylak, come from other experiences. She's stored up stores in winter, and she looks after those and guards them and uses them carefully to get through to spring, to go through a dark period of winter. And then when as we're standing on the cusp of Imbolc, she comes out and she uses her cudgel and her stick to beat back winter. And I think about that when I am in the dark time of winter, I often go into this deep rest period of close to what people would call depressed because of the low light and so on. And I think of that when I think of things happening in the world and the multiple different crises that are coming together and the adaptations and losses and time of death as well and destruction that is all part of the cycles. And then it's almost like when you live into spring and another year is coming, you have to push back those darker thoughts back into the light that is coming and become active again. A lot of the name Kylak is associated in the English with witches. And I think of that uh, when I think of the, the the stirring of things up, the kind of beating back winter, stirring things up, a lot of a type of mischief that's associated in imagery with the older, wiser women. They're really mischievous and yet secretive and hidden in their ways. They're up to stuff, but you're never quite sure what they're up to. And sometimes I think that's part of not knowing yourself what you're up to, but feeling called to step in and do something. And I think that as I'm still trying to understand my own lineage and find and remain anchored in some way, I am accessing knowledge and understanding of the tribes and clans that make up my family, the names that are back there of James and Stuart and Reed from a lot of the Scottish clans that come through my line, and also the great Ulster clan of Neils and O'Neills, and what happened to them and how they seem to transform into surviving in some way in amongst the different waves of royals and colonizers and clan leaders and chiefdoms. And as I find the stories, there's just constant changing fortunes and frequent migrations and fleeing as well. And so there's just a time in the land that that change and destruction cycles through my family life, cycles through my own migrations. I was talking in the episode on identity about another migration that happened again when my parents left a very troubled part of Ireland in the 1970s and moved us to the south. And I think that when I look back at indigenous wisdom and I look at indigenous peoples I've encountered today and the beauty and passion for compassion and for love that I've encountered when I've met indigenous elders, people who smile and laugh and play readily. I am also struck by the darkness is a time I'm coming out of, of the lament and the loss for those times of earth-honoring powers, the times when people were 
attached to the rhythms where there were feasts of abundance and where although we cannot go back and no doubt there is romanticism about even trying to go back and I'm not really looking to go back to something I can't possibly understand if I have conceptions of indigenous ancestors they are based on modern indigenous people that I've met that are already affected by the changes of modernity too but it is something of drawing the threads together of weaving and finding stories that can allow us to create new visions of what we may be living today, how we might live now. Not because we know what the future brings. We know that the cycles of challenge, of death, of destruction, of renewal, of spring coming back once again, will continue on this planet now and long after human species are on this rock in the universe and even as a universe we know that that's the cycle we know that one day the sun will even become colder and wink out and as we look in the winter skies at this time of year i'm constantly struck by what my ancestors saw in those same skies and the stars and the planets and the changes of the seasons and i feel like there is something there for us to access and tap into something that's been eroded in our own knowledge, something that I do lament for, and that the Kailak had an honoured power, not a power over, but rather something to help bring balance and vision. So those are the thoughts that I'm exploring this time as I look back at my ancestors and their connection to this land, and as I try to renew my own deeper connection.